Father, if even we were to reflect on our sins just of the past week, Lord, we would understand why we need your mercy. Not simply your mercy, but your, your patience, your kindness, your love, everything that makes us who we are, everything that makes us what we can become, it all flows from you, from your great heart of compassion and mercy and love. So, Father, as we continue before you this morning in worship and in praise, we pray that our hearts and our minds and our spirits would be attuned with yours, that our worship would be a sweet smell to you. We pray that your spirit would move freely through us today, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. While we were doing our pastoral internship in Canada, Barbara and I made close friends with another couple who shared a similar interest, and that was the theater. We loved stage and theater productions, especially uh, musicals and so forth. But on several occasions, off we went to Stratford-on-the-Avon. No, that's not in England. That's in Canada. And uh, we would go there to watch Shakespeare. And so uh, we saw a number of things there. We saw Romeo and Juliet, and we saw uh, A Midsummer's Night Dream, The Taming of the, the Shrew. You know, at the end, there's something. How many of you have been to a play? You, you've been to these things. You know what I'm talking about. And at the end, you know there's always what's called a curtain call. So at the curtain call... You know, all the stars of the program, they come forward and they, they, they do their, their bow. And if the audience is appreciative enough, why, uh, they go back and then they, they come out and they do it again. Now, this happened uh, once, no kidding, to Luciano Pavarotti, 165 curtain calls from a single show. Is that remarkable? And, and it just it just tells you uh, you never know you think it's over <laughs> with the curtain call, but it's not. Sometimes it can go on and on and on, but you know it's over. You know it's done. You know it's finished, and you know it's complete with certainty when the conductor is recognized. Everyone knows that if there is no music, there is no show. Tennessee Williams' play, The Glass Menagerie, begins with Tom, the narrator, who tells the audience, in memory, everything seems to happen to music. Even in worship, music allows us a direct connection with God in ways that sermons don't often do. Uh, it's as if our singing allows us to connect with a part of God, to our hearts to speak to God in a way that spoken words does not often express. And when we sing as a community, something inside of us awakens, individually but also collectively, connecting each of us to 
one another and also to God. You know, God created us to commune from the very depths of our spirit. And singing is one of the most direct ways that I know that we can accomplish this. So as we enjoyed each theater uh, performance that we watch, and you know, I, I could I could go on with other things as well, Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, so many other things we, that we just so enjoy. Each member of the orchestra would would play their part. Now they're usually down in a pit, so you don't really see them very well, but but they play their part. Sometimes they play furiously without a break, and sometimes they're resting, but they're always watching. They're always watching the conductor. They're always counting, and they're always waiting for when they are to play. You see, the conductor doesn't simply lead the orchestra. The conductor breathes life into it. He interprets determines the tempo, the tone, the swell, the phrasing. No conductor, no orchestra. No orchestra, no music, no music. Just a chaotic noise. And when the conductor is done, the music is done. Now think about this extended metaphor for just a moment and ask yourself the question, is Jesus the conductor of your life. I mean, in order for the conductor to play, to allow the orchestra to play music in a beautiful way, the conductor literally hears all of the instruments. That, that, I, that, that stuns me. I'm going to tell you something a little later on in the sermon about conducting that stuns me even more than that. But the truth is, that the conductor has to hear every note in order to tell that instrument, that person, what to do. Too loud, too soft, too sharp, too flat, or well done even. He hears each note of our lives. He hears each note that you play in your life and he conducts in real time, folks. He conducts in real time and it's up to us as he's making those adjustments in our lives along the way that we keep our eyes on him. And if we do that, then the music in our lives is skillfully crafted and joined in with the music of others. Looks like an orchestra right here in such a way as to produce beauty. For each one of us at a determined point in the score, he will put down his baton and your instrument will play no more on this earth. You will move to another greater concert hall. But the score sheet doesn't simply contain our individual parts. It also contains the whole. And it reaches, and we're going to look at this in just a moment, it reaches a crescendo as the time of Satan's rule, as the God of this age comes to a close. And in a furious, earth-altering, magnificent closure, 
through the repetition of thematic elements, right from Exodus, from Daniel, from Ezekiel, in fact, from all of Scripture, he will put down his baton and he will say this, It is done. It is done. We know when the conductor appears on the stage, it is done. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. We'll look at verses 8 through 21. I'll read the entire passage so that we have a sense of what's, of what's happening here. And I'll point out what I believe are the most salient things about it. Revelation 16, 8 through 21. And it's here where we will see that God proclaims, God Himself proclaims, it is done. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming from out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and in a loud voice came from out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. In verse 17, the Lord calls from the throne, it is done. Interestingly, this is the same word that's found in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, only twice in the Bible could I find this phrase, it is done, where the Lord is speaking it. 
The other place is in Revelation 21, chapter, uh, chapter 21 and verse 6, at the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's where he says there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It is done. Not lightly does the Lord say it is done. Now this is different. It's a different word than Jesus said on the cross. On the cross he said it is finished. Finished, it is finished, is the English translation of a Greek word, tetelestai, which is the last thing that Jesus said on the cross. And that word, tetelestai, not that you need to know the word, but it comes from a word that some of you will recognize if you've studied uh, apologetics. Telos, teleos, the purpose of something and this is what he was saying is that this particular course, the purpose has been fulfilled. The purpose of this is done. It's crucial. He has brought an end to complete, to accomplishment, the work of salvation. The word here in our text in Revelation means essentially the deeds are done. What he's saying here is that the judgments are done and mankind remains unrepentant. But it's more than that. It's the world is now ready for Messiah to take his throne on earth, fulfilling all those promises to the nation of Israel and in introducing the millennium. So now, what has occurred to come to this climax? What is it? What are these bowls? We looked at the first three last week. We'll look at the last four this week. The first one, the fourth bowl, focus on the intense heat of the sun. Uh, now, we don't know what will happen. Nobody has any any clue. I don't know if this is supernatural, if this is natural, whatever. But something's going to happen because the sun that's usually associated with, with warmth and with light is, is now going to be associated with a fierce heat. Now, I don't know what uh, fierce heat is, biblically speaking, but I have a photo of me on a deployment standing there holding a thermometer that says 132 degrees. Now, that's fierce heat as far as I'm concerned. You had to wear gloves and long sleeves in that kind of heat because if you bumped up against something metal, it would hurt you. And I don't mean just, ow, it's burned. It's like an iron. You had to drive with gloves. You just, it was a, just a phenomenal kind of heat. Now, I understand that the uh, highest registered air temperature, so I don't know if this was... Ambient air, I don't know how they measure these things. But you know the highest temperature ever measured right here in these United States. In Death Valley, a place called uh, Furnace Creek. <laughs> Furnace Creek Ranch, California, Death Valley. It was on the 10th of July, 1913, and it was 134.1 degrees. That's hot. My guess, this fierce heat, from the sun, it's going to be hotter than that. And the response, 
the people cursed and refused to repent. Now, carefully note this. I want you to note this because it's important. The failure of people to repent shows that knowledge and experience, even if there's a certitude that it's divine, of judgment will not change our sinful condition. Oh, that sorrow and suffering would change us. But it does not. The hardened heart is hardened further under suffering. It does not turn to God in softness and tenderness and brokenness. We get worse. And that's what we see here. God is actually, and I hope to demonstrate this, and I've laid this out and John laid it out in his message as well, over a month of time that this is a continuation, as we sang, of our sins. They are many, but His mercy is more. Those who are not won by grace will never be won. Then there's the fifth bowl, verses 10 and 11, and it's directed towards the beast's throne. And so there is darkness and there are painful sores. And again, what did they do? They cursed. They failed to repent. Interestingly, this is the last reference in the book of Revelation to repentance. Uh, You know, I don't read too much into that, but based on what I'm seeing here, and especially when the Lord says it is done, I think that means it, it is done. There is no more. That's it. The sixth bowl will be when the sixth angel pours out his bowl and dries up the river Euphrates to prepare the way for the kings of of the east. Now that the Euphrates, and I'm, I'm one, maybe there are some others in here who have actually seen the Euphrates uh, river, uh, that's not merely speculation. You know, I mean, for a millennium, you know, before I say that, there's one little interesting thing. There are, there are people who are known by single names. There are, you know, events that are known by single numbers and things like that. But in the ancient Near East, do you know what the Euphrates River was called? It is actually hardly ever called the Euphrates. It's, called, it's the river. So when they say the river, it means the Euphrates. So when you look up in the Old Testament, this will be a fun thing for some of you. Uh, Others just bypass this. When When you look it up and it says that they went from here to the Euphrates, it doesn't say that. It says they went from there to the river. But everybody knew it was the Euphrates. So the Euphrates is the river. The Euphrates from Genesis, from the very beginning... Until the very end in Revelation, the Euphrates was a mighty, mighty river. And for a millennia, the Tigris and the Euphrates, you know, they start up there in Turkey and so forth, and they weave around down, and then they come together, and then they flow into the Persian Gulf. For a millennia, the Tigris and the Euphrates were the guardians between the Middle East and all of the rest of the East. It protected them from the peoples who currently live in 
in Iran and Afghanistan. Pakistan as far away as India and China. Rome actually considered the Euphrates its eastern guard. It was considered a guard. And the river's flow absolutely prohibited any large-scale invasions. However, in the 1960s, Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, they began building dams. Now, before the dams were built, right, the Euphrates flowed at about 265,000 cubic feet per second. It was anywhere from 150 to 500 meters wide. Meters a little bit longer than a yard. But the number of dams has stressed the river so much that even where the Tigris and the Euphrates come together, it's called the Shat al-Arab, and it only runs for about 100 miles into the Persian Gulf, and it's smaller than the Brazos. Smaller than the Brazos when it ran through Granbury before they built the dam. <laughs> There's not a lot of water flowing through there, folks. In fact, there are places on the Euphrates this very day that you can walk across it. You can walk across it. And I tell you, there's not much that could stop a mechanized or a modern army from crossing that thing today. Since the 1960s, it's already been drying up. I'm not talking, you know, uh, God can do this supernaturally. He did that with the Jordan. He did that with the Red Sea. He can, he can do that. At this point, he didn't have to. Now, that either means we're getting closer or, you know, maybe they'll bust all those dams down and the water will flow again and he'll dry it regardless. doesn't matter. Now, no one knows who the kings of the East are. Now, from my biblical perspective, you know, I, I, I lean towards uh, Persia because even when Israel, even when they say trouble always comes from the north, they didn't mean north in the compass. What they meant was in order to get to Israel, you couldn't cross the devil's anvil. <laughs> you know, you couldn't. Nobody lived. You, you had to go up across the Fertile Crescent and then down. So all the invasions came up and then down from the north. However, it could go all the way to China. The truth is we don't know. But in verses 16 through, uh, 13 through 16, John sees three evil spirits that look like frogs coming out of the mouths of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Now, they're demons, right? And they go around the world, and they're doing something specific. They are getting all the kings, all the rulers, to come and gather together to do battle. Uh, I can't take time to develop this, but the Egyptian uh, goddess, it was a, one of them was a frog, right? And she was the goddess of uh, magic. And then what you have, too, is that the Greeks had this same goddess, and this goddess was the goddess of the, the air and the land and the sea. And so this is a refutation. That's who this is speaking about, these, these demons that go out and they 
they compel or they convince, they deceive so that they'll all gather for war, which in itself is a fascinating thing, is it not? Have you ever thought about that? Why are they all gathering for war? I mean, the beast has not, he just consolidated his power. Why would he, why would, why would Satan, the beast, the false prophet get into a war, you know, with their own? How does that make sense? Now, most commentators, they, they pull up to the 20,000 foot view and they say, yeah, 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 yeah. Here's what's happening. What's happening is Satan is doing this in order to get all these people together so that they might mount a campaign against Christ when he comes. And that may be true. I, and, I, and I don't question that harshly. But I will say this. Satan already knows what's going to happen. And you know what's going to happen. It's going to be done. Unless he himself continues to be deceived at that point. But why would he be continued to be deceived when the scripture tells us that he knows the time is short? I have a different view. But I hold it just as loosely as I would the first one. And that's this. And we're seeing it in some quarters these days, and we've witnessed it throughout history. So I'll just give one example. Uh, Maximilien de uh, Robespierre, right? He was a lawyer, he was a statesman, and he was also one of the prime movers of the French Revolution, the terror. He was bent on killing his enemies, men or women, didn't matter. However, when one unleashes terror, it's not unlike unleashing a biological agent. It does not care whom it consumes. It doesn't. All it cares about is that it consumes. So those of you who know anything about the French Revolution know that the guy who had all this done, ended up being guillotined himself. You see, there's, there's a principle that I'd like to draw from that, and that is this. Evil, evil, and this includes Satan. Evil has no companions. Evil eats its own. They only have one virtue in common. And that is this, whatever accumulates treasure and pleasure to self, that's what they take. And if, if you interfere with that, uh, you're, you're their enemy as well. Then John heard the warning coming from Christ himself. Christ says, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Often in Scripture we see this, we see this comparison. Christ's return is compared to a, the coming of a thief. There's a certain suddenness. There's an unexpectedness. There's an unpreparedness about it. But Christ, through the Gospels and even up to here, for the tribulation saints, he's saying the same thing. But you, be ready. Be ready. Be prepared. 
And I believe, based on the way the prophetic clock ticks, that most of the believers who remain, any of them who have access to the Word of God, will know when Christ is returning. They won't know the day, they won't know the hour, but they'll, they'll, they'll be ready. In fact, they'll be, they'll be calling upon it. And so now we come to it, the seventh bowl. The seventh angel then poured out his bowl into the air. John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And then John saw lightning and heard thunder. And then there was a massive earthquake. In fact, John is told that this is the greatest earthquake that has ever happened on earth while men have been on it. The, the, the great city is split into three parts. Some argue this, the great city is Jerusalem. Others argue the great city is Babylon, regardless of the meaning of which city is being referred to here, the most important thing is that all the cities collapse. This huge earthquake is going to be so massive that it even says that the islands fled and mountains could not be found. It's going to be earth-shaking. Finally, there's another thing here, and I found this of huge interest. It says, huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, will fall on people. And what does that reveal? Again, it only reveals the hardness of the hearts. It says, and they curse God on account of the plague of hail. However, that was because it was so terrible. But it, you know, if you look up hailstones, what you'll find is the largest hailstones are about eight inches in diameter, and I think the biggest one weighed about two and a quarter pounds, something like that. But you may not be aware, some of you may be aware, that's not the largest thing that falls out of the sky. Our sky, created in our sky, not a meteorite. And it turns out that if you look around, you can have these things that are called hydrometeors, all right? They're a little bit bigger. In fact, they're a lot bigger, but they're way lighter. They're like big snowballs that come down. The size of a sheep, apparently. That's big. Even though it's a snowball, I still wouldn't want to get hit by it, right? But then if you look further, there are what are called mega cryometeors. Have you, have you ever heard of a mega cryometeor? There's been about 50 of them that have fallen in the last 20 years. And some of them are small. One of them weighed about one pound and hit somewhere. One in Brazil, one in Brazil weighed 110 pounds. This hunk of ice out of the clear blue sky. Now, some have argued, well, that's that simple. They... They fall from airliners flying at about 38,000 feet and somebody, you know, well, they just, they dump the toilet is what happened, right? And the problem with that is, is that the ice that comes, and it, that does happen, oh, by the way, is blue. It's blue because of the dis disinfectant that they use, but uh, 
a mega cryo meteor is made out of rainwater. It's, it's, it's made out of uh, rainwater. And besides that, even if you said, well, it may have fallen off a wing of an airplane, that doesn't explain the six foot, seven uh, inch hunk of ice that fell in Scotland. Several of them, actually, that was the largest one in 1849. Now, I don't know if we had airplanes in 1849. We may have had weather balloons, not weather balloons, but observation balloons, but no, 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 no. This is a phenomenon that's, and I'm not trying to take away in any way God's supernatural ability to do this. I'm just saying that many of these things are already in place. And I'm not saying that to be alarmist in any way. I'm just saying that Christ himself not only to the tribulation saints, but to us in the gospel said, be ready. Be ready. It is done. Like the Amorite sin not being full in mercy, God has stretched out this scene as much as he possibly could. Seals followed by trumpets. Trumpets followed by bowls, but now there will be no more judgments on the earth. It is done. You know, I like to think that I'm coordinated. But I can't pat my head and rub my tummy at the same time. I can't do it. Some of you were able to do that because I, I don't know, but in high school, you know, you'd do that. I couldn't. I never could do that. Yet top-tier conductors can <laughs> direct with one time signature in one hand and another time signature in the other. <laughs> in fact, the story is told of a great French conductor. His name was Pierre Belize. Uh, he stopped a rehearsal. He complained that the oboist... Uh, didn't come in on time, and the oboist, who was a consummate professional, said, Nonsense! You didn't conduct me in! To which Bolez replied, I am conducting in 7-4 with my right hand, 6-4 with my left hand. You come in on the seventh beat, so you should be watching my right foot! <laughs> You know, despite all their suffering, they wouldn't repent. And though the Lord knows the perfect time signature for you to operate in, you have to watch. You have to look. You have to be aware of His direction. Otherwise, our music is only noise, corporately and or individually. Spurgeon wrote, I have known people to say, well, if I were afflicted, I might be converted. If I lay sick, I might be saved. Oh, do not think so. Sickness and sorrow of themselves are no helps to salvation. Pain and poverty are not evangelists. Disease and despair are not apostles. There is nothing in pain and suffering that by their own natural operation will tend to to purification. One day, the conductor is going to walk on the scene 
in our ability to take his direction by faith will be over. You realize the only time you can exercise faith is now. Now. You will not exercise faith in eternity. You will have sight. You will be in the presence of the One who gave Himself for you. And the One who goes from eternity to eternity. So allow the conductor to bring out the music in your soul and by focusing on Him, live a life worthy of your calling. And when He drops the baton and says, it is done, both in time, our time, and in the age of mankind on earth, in the age of Satan as the God of this world, we will have been found doing His will so that when we see Him, He will say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we we don't understand all the things that are coming to the earth. We don't understand all of the ways, the manners, the means. We don't understand. But that which we know, we hold to as a sacred trust. And we pray that those things, and if someone has never heard that Christ is coming back, may today be the day that they turn their heart to Him and look to the true conductor of their soul and live a life worthy of their calling through Christ our Lord. Amen.